In the 40s and 50s, if you wanted to ruin somebody's rep entire reputation, you simply labeled them a communist. That was how you got rid of somebody you didn't like. Some of you probably remember the Cold War and can understand why this might be like this, what it meant to um, to battle the communists. Some of, some of you probably remember those days. I, on the other hand, I was not a part of any of that. And having studied the early church, I see a lot more communism than capitalism in the, the structure and organization and lifestyle of the first believers with one important distinction. They were led by compassionate and servant-hearted leadership rather than self-serving and power-hungry dictatorships. And that's a big difference. Um, although capitalism itself is no less self-serving or power-hungry. It just is masked in a different way. But I digress. But it's statements like what I just made that would, even though I don't see them as controversial at all for a follower of Jesus, they're the kind of statements that could get me dragged before govern, government officials in, in post-World War II America. Those were dangerous statements to make. Um, the height of this was during the widely ridiculed and enormous overreaction and breach of constitutional rights that was the witch hunt uh, led by the House Un-American Activities Anybody familiar with the McCarthyism and, and all that stuff? So basically, it resulted in many actors, screenwriters, directors, and musicians getting blacklisted um, because they were seen as communist sympathizers. Now, I can't imagine a situation today where I'm dragged before a group of senators and government officials to defend my political beliefs at risk of forfeiting my livelihood. That's just not something that happens to us today especially in a country that guarantees freedom of speech, freedom of association, and freedom of beliefs. But that's exactly the situation that faced many of the most famous names in Hollywood. It seems preposterous to me, but there were reasons. Those reasons were kind of fueled by xenophobia and toxic nationalism and hateful hive mentality. There was an enemy, and, and if you were anything like the enemy at all, then you were the enemy. And you can kind of understand that, but it, it was just toxic hive mentality. But the efforts of the House Un-American Activity Committee would have all been in vain had it not been one for one thing. Some people in and around Hollywood were willing to name names. They found people who were willing to name names. Throughout the 40s and 50s, informants, some of whom claiming to have once belonged to the American Communist Party themselves, submitted lists of names of communist sympathizers and subversives. Un-American Activity. The people on these lists were then dragged before the committee and forced to renounce any potential communist beliefs. Those who refused, either because they truly did hold socialist sympathies or out of principle for the ridiculousness of the entire proceedings, those who refused to renounce communism were banned from their respective guilds and disavowed among their peers. In the 60s, many of those who named those names would defend the ethics of their decision. There really were some pretty brutal communist regimes in those days, and you really shouldn't have aligned yourself with communism, they would say. Uh, and so they defended the ethics of their decision. Others would later admit they only did so out of fear for their own jobs, to gain an advantage over other people by naming them as commies. One famous name, Sterling Hayden. Has anybody ever seen Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove? It's one of my favorite movies, and it is great satire. It's one of those movies that definitely would not have been made during the height of McCarthyism because it is um, very un-American 
in one sense, it's it's satire. It's prophetic. But Sterling Hayden, who's in that movie, he said with remorse later in the 60s, he says, I was a rat, a stoolie, and the names I named of those close friends were blacklisted and deprived of their livelihood. For years, he would drink, drink himself almost into suicidal depression in his regret for his role in the proceedings, his regret for having named names. Many other people dealt with that regret as well. They sold other people down the river for their own advantage. Well, let's rewind about 1900 years in history to the time when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, and we'll see that he too is in the business of naming names. Except Paul had a very different reason. A few weeks ago, in a sermon entitled, Worthy of Honor, we examined two such names named by our apostle, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul names these two servants of Jesus as honorable men whose sacrificial examples are models of Christ and should be imitated by the Philippian congregation and, by extension, us, hundreds of years later. Today, we will hear Paul name one more name for a similar purpose, Clement. Clement is a fellow who we know nothing about except that his name is on a much greater list than the one submitted to the House Un-American Activities Committee. He's listed in the Book of Life. But Paul will also name two other names. Women's names, in fact. And at first glance, these two names, Euodia and Syntyche, seem to be getting called out by Paul in a manner similar to a 50s-era McCarthy trial. It may seem like Paul is naming names to shame them and ruin their reputation. In the hands of a less Christ-like leader than Paul, that may have been the case. But as we'll see, Paul is not naming these names in the same manner as the, the anti-communist witch hunts of yesteryear. Instead, he names them in the Lord. And that's why it's naming names in the Lord. And that distinction is very crucial. What that means is that Paul names Euodia and Syntyche not to dismantle them or demoralize them, but rather to refocus them on important things, the most important things, in fact. So let's uncover Paul's purposes as we read Philippians 4, 1 to 3. Before we move any further, I should declare openly, I'm not a communist. Just, just so you know. I'm also not a capitalist. I think it's also a failed system. I'm somewhere in between. I'm a kingdomist. I, I don't know. Never mind. Philippians 4, 1 to 3. Therefore, my brothers... You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. That's right, three verses. We're going to do a whole sermon on those three verses. That's just how I do things. In these two paragraphs, Paul makes two different pleas. One is a general plea that we will make specific for our own circumstances. The other is a specific plea that we will need to generalize for our own circumstances. And there are two factors that connect these two pleas together. Number one, they both have the purpose of summarizing everything Paul's written before and giving it practical application. So they are a summary and an application of everything Paul said since chapter 127. And number two, they both feature a crucial little phrase that is incredibly easy to gloss over. I know I glossed over it when I first read it until one of my commentaries pointed it out to me. And that phrase is, in the Lord. So Paul's, he's doing two things here. He's summarizing and giving application and he's doing so in the Lord. And that phrase is very important. 
that little phrase is what we're going to focus on the most in the Lord. But first, there is a completely separate issue that I need to address from this passage before we get to these two main themes. It's totally separate. This is an historically and theologically significant piece of scripture precisely because of the nature of the two names Paul names in verse 2. They are significant precisely because they are women. We need to talk about this. Of course, if you read the King James Version, does anybody read the King James Version? Yeah? You really shouldn't. It, it's, it's a garbage translation. Yep, I'm sorry. It, it is. If you read the King James Version, you won't find two women in verse 2. For many reasons, the King James Version is a pretty trashy translation of the Bible, and few verses are more, pure, more poorly rendered in that version than Philippians 4, 2, and 3. In the King James Version, the translators felt that the original scribes who had copied Paul's letter, they didn't have Paul's original letter, they had copies of Paul's letters that date back to within 100 years of Paul, and they translated off of those scribe copies, and they thought that those original scribes must have made a mistake. So they changed the name Euodia, which is clearly a feminine name in the Greek, into the name Euodius. Are you reading the King James right now? Does it say Euodius? Yeah, that's a man's name. Euodius is a man's name. It's a masculine Greek name. They did this despite the fact that Euodia was a common woman's name throughout the Roman Empire at that time, and despite the fact that there is no evidence whatsoever that the name Euodius, a man's name, ever existed at all. Euodia, very common. Euodius, never heard of before. They also did this despite the fact that the Greek pronouns that follow in verse 3 are hautes and hetines which are feminine pronouns that always mean these women and women who. It's like if instead of they, we had a male and a female version of they, like she and they. And she was what we said when it's a group of women, and they is what we said when there's a group of men. Well, there the Greek has that. And in verse 3, when it says, what does it say? Help these women. It doesn't say help these women. It just says help these. But the Greek is a feminine pronoun. So it's help these women. So if Paul had been speaking of men, he would have wrote hautos or hoitenes. That's the masculine declension of those pronouns. But he didn't. In other words, everything about Paul's word choices prove beyond a doubt that he is speaking to and about two women. This is, there's, Euodius is not a person. It's Euodia, and she's a woman. And still the King James Version chose to mistranslate the female name Euodia, into the fake name Euodius, and they made Syntyche into this fictional man's wife. So they chose to transform them into a married couple, having a marital squabble that is threatening the spiritual health of the Philippian congregation. But that's not what the Greek says at all. They just chose to, to change it like that. Why do you think the writers of the King James Version, writing in 1611, willfully chose to ignore the evidence and change Euodia into a man? Why do you think they did that? I'll give you two reasons. I'll give you hints for both. One starts with a P and ends with patriarchy. One starts with an M and ends in misogyny. Patriarchy and misogyny. You see, the male scholars who translated the King James Version in a world where men and only men held all the authority, especially in the patriarchal structure of the church, those men in their patriarchy, refused to believe that two women could be in such obvious positions of prominence and power. 
They read chapter four. They saw two women named and honored as, as tremendous leaders in the church, and they couldn't believe that could ever happen. So they just went ahead and changed Euodia into a man, and that solved everything for them. Except it doesn't solve anything. The idea of Paul calling two women co-workers who contend alongside Paul in the cause of the gospel, as it says in verse 2 and 3, was so egregious to their misogynist male egos that they just conveniently gave poor Euodia an unwarranted sex change. Just turned her into a man. All of the evidence, both in the book of Acts and the book of Philippians, points to the fact that women held positions of leadership in the early church, and particularly in Philippi. This is a congregation that began as only women. Remember when we studied Acts? I think it's chapter 16. Paul wanders into Philippi. He looks for a synagogue because that's where he always went to first. Can't find one. So he goes down to the river, which is where God-fearers would often work. God-fearers are Gentiles who who love God and follow God. He goes to the river because that's where God-fearers would often go in a city where there's no synagogue. And when he goes to, to the river, he finds a group of women singing and praising God. And those women were the start of the church. In fact, the most prominent of these women was a woman named Lydia. And they met in Lydia's house because Lydia was a woman of means. And in those days, household was everything. To be the leader of a household, if a church met in a household, that meant that household was the leader of that church. Which means Lydia was almost certainly the leader of the local Philippian congregation. It's not too much of a stretch to assume that. We can't go too far and assign Euodia and Syntyche the roles of preachers and teachers and pastors because the scripture doesn't say that that's what they were. It doesn't give them those specific titles. But what we can say is that the language of verse 3 holds these two women and their male counterpart, Clement, in extremely high regard. In fact, Paul, the language Paul uses where it translates true yoke fellow, that's a word that Paul uses only of the most well-known, most well-regarded, most famous servants that worked along Paul. Think of guys like Luke, Timothy, Mark. Those are guys who are called, in other letters, true yoke fellow, true co-workers, true servants of God with Paul. And here, Euodia and Syntyche are given the same title. That's extremely high regard from a man who was the leader of the entire church at the time. These are women who Paul views as friends and equals. He speaks glowingly of them as leaders and kingdom servants. And as we'll see later, the mere fact that he names them at all, usually in a situation where there's dissension, where there's disunity, Paul doesn't name names because that gives power to the dissension. But here he does name their names because they were in prominent positions of power. It would be, and men do this, it would be pure machismo and male arrogance to dismiss this this issue as just a, a mere catfight squabble between two women. That it's just because women are so emotional and they're they're fighting over silly emotional things. Men tend to dismiss this and historically have done so, but that's not what Paul is doing or saying. Paul only names them because they are prominent leaders in the church, and their dispute is so significant that he writes all of Philippians to counter their dispute. So what does that tell you about the, the place of prominence for Euodia and Syntyche? If these were just two women squabbling over whatever, just like, or if it was two men squabbling over whatever, would he have written a whole letter to address the situation? No, I don't think so. 
Their disagreement is significant enough that Paul names them because their leadership is significant enough that their dispute threatens to undermine the entire congregation's work for the gospel of Christ. The church goes as their leader goes, and if their leaders are disunified, the church will be disunified. I know it's Father's Day, and it's about dads, but really, in Western society, every day is about men. So I'm going to turn this over to, to you women and affirm to all of you women serving your God with just as much heart and soul and strength as the men around you. I want to affirm you that in Christ, there is no such thing as male and female. Barbarian, Scythian, Greek, Jew. <coughs> that doesn't mean that gender doesn't exist. It just means that God, that the roles traditionally assigned to men and women need not exist, I believe. Anyone can be a servant of his and anyone can be a leader among his people. Men who deny leadership of women do so with a completely lazy attitude towards biblical interpretation. They'd rather change a woman's gender than change their own convenient opinions on patriarchal power. Of course men aren't going to lay down power. Nobody likes to lay down power and share it with anyone else. So they don't. They just change the gender of Euodia instead. But Euodia and Syntyche are proof that women can be leaders in the church, and all the background evidence suggests that women can be the leaders of a church. In fact, it's very rare for Paul to open a letter addressing elders and deacons. He opens Philippians in that way, which many people think means because he's addressing Euodia and Syntyche, because the whole letter is about the issue rising between Euodia and Syntyche, among other issues. They think they address, he addresses bishops and elders because women were bishops and elders in Philippi. That's what they think, which wouldn't be rare in, in Philippi because Macedonian women always had positions of power. So why wouldn't they in the church? I think it's a pretty important question for us to wrestle with. All the background evidence suggests that women can be the leaders of a church, and there's no compelling reason why not, as far as I can see, despite how men in church authority have attempted to eliminate your leadership roles, women, and your meaningful contributions, and your powerful voices. So ladies, we need servant-hearted Euodias and servant-hearted Syntyches more than ever, who are unified under the banner of Christ. So this has been Scriptural Feminism Facts with Chris Lance. Hope you enjoyed. Now let's get back to our regular scheduled programming. The two pleas in verses 1 to 3. That's what we were talking about. The general plea to all the brothers and sisters in Philippi. And the specific pleas to Euodia, Syntyche, and the mysterious true companion. They're connected by these true factors that we already looked at. One, they offer a summary and practical application of everything Paul's taught since 127. And two, they feature the key phrase, in the Lord. So let's quickly unpack these a little more. First of all, what key words would you, you use to describe Paul's teaching since 127? Or in other words, what key words have I been harping on you ad nauseum since around February? What are the words you keep hearing me say over and over? With metaphors like musk oxen and cherries on top and races to be won. With phrases like big deal and divine pattern and rookie mistakes. What words are Paul trying to drill into the thick skulls of the Philippians and the Canadians with this letter? What are some of the words? Unity. Thank you, Trish. That's number one. That's the thing over and over and over we talked about is unity. There's one more. There's, there's a bunch. There's a lot of great answers, but there's one in particular. Anybody want to venture a guess? What does Paul say? Run the race with? I, somebody started to say it. Perseverance. That's exactly right. Unity and perseverance. Well done. 
She hasn't even heard any of those other sermons, you guys. And she knows. Well done. The two words we're going to use to summarize everything from the end of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 3, the two words that Paul directs their attention back to in verses 1 to 3 as he begins to conclude his letter, because that's what chapter 4 is. He's wrapping things up. The two words that he chooses to emphasize are perseverance and unity. Paul's thesis for all of this is chapter 1, verse 27, which reads, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's why he's writing Philippians, to compel them to do this. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then it says, and continues on in 127, Then I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. What does it mean to stand firm? It means to persevere. Striving together as one. What does that mean? That means unity for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is everything to Paul and us. The gospel is everything. And for the Philippians and us to be successful in the gospel, we need those two things, perseverance and unity. And the two go hand in hand. You can't persevere without unity. You can't persevere if you're fighting with yourselves. You can't focus on the goal if you're focusing on the problems with each other. So you you can't persevere without unity. And we cannot be unified unless we persevere. Because it is, is it easy to always get along with other humans? Is it? No, it is not. I love all of you. And I enjoy being with all of you. But you must find me incredibly irritating at times. And I don't blame you. It's not easy to get along with people. So you can't persevere without unity. And you can't be unified without perseverance. They go hand in hand. Muskoxen, as we talked about, persevere in the harsh conditions of their world by banding together for warmth and protection. If a muskox is off by itself, it's not going to survive. The race that we run with endurance right to the end requires the support of our brothers and sisters. We can't run this race by ourselves. Not even Paul can do that. Super Christian Paul relies on people like Luke and Epaphroditus and Timothy and the entire Philippian congregation to make himself effective for the gospel, even super-Christian Paul. And so, as Paul wraps up all his beautiful and eloquent teachings from the last few chapters, he returns to focus on those two key concepts, perseverance and unity. We see perseverance pop up in verse 1, when Paul urges the brothers and sisters to stand firm in the Lord. What does it mean to stand firm in the Lord? It's a military term. It just means persevere. Don't give up. Don't lose ground. Keep pressing forward. Stand firm. It means to endure, to persevere. Notice how affectionate he is with the Philippians. Listen to the language of verse 1. Therefore, and then he calls them brothers, and by extension sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. And then he wraps up one more time with my dear friends. It's glowing language. He He calls them his beloved, his joy and crown, the ones he loves and longs for. He cares so deeply for these people. It's obvious. And what does he need these people who he cares so deeply about? What does he need them to to get, to learn? Perseverance. They need to stand firm. They must persevere. Therefore, the verse starts with therefore. And that therefore at the beginning of the verse means he's reminding them of everything he's already written. And not just from the paragraph immediately preceding. So these beloved Philippians he loves so much, he couldn't bear to see his beloved Philippians cave to their worldly desires, as he writes about in the previous paragraph. 
He couldn't bear to see his joy and crown take their eyes off the eschatological prize, the end times prize, and forfeit the glory awaiting them at the end of their life's race, which is what he wrote about in the paragraph before that. He couldn't bear to see the friends he longs for return to the trash of legalism and self-righteousness, as he wrote in the paragraph before that. And he couldn't bear to see his dearly loved church tear apart at the seams as they grumble and argue and pursue vanity and prioritize selfish ambitions and ignore their neighbors, as he wrote way back in chapter 2. Any of these things, turning to legalism and self-righteousness, turning to disunity and vain pursuits, uh, giving up on the, the race, turning their eyes off the prize, caving to their worldly desires, any of those things would indicate a lack of perseverance. Paul writes of dogs coming with their worship of rules and traditions. He writes of Romans coming with crosses and prison shackles. There are constant threats of exhaustion and fear and idolatry and pride. He has warned them of all of this in our letter, and we've studied them all too. Now he calls them to face all of this and to stand firm, persevere, keep racing, because that's how you honor the gospel of Christ. You cling to it when everything and everyone around you tries to topple you from it. That's how you honor the gospel of Christ. You focus on it when a world of comfort and pleasure and power tries to distract you away from the gospel. That's how you honor the gospel of Christ. You run to it when every human instinct tells you to abandon it. You persevere in your faith, dear brothers and sisters, no matter what you are facing and no matter what opposes you and no matter how challenging it it might be. Because nothing is worth more than the good news of Jesus. Nothing you can set your eyes on is worth more than him. So don't give up. Persevere. Stand firm. Actually, as Paul says in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Remember I said we were going to look at two things. The second of those is that little phrase, in the Lord. Well, that's the caveat. And it's more than just a tag online. We've seen in the Lord before. Here, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's like nine times where Paul adds that little tagline, in the Lord. You can see them here. In 114, Paul's imprisonment causes rejoicing in the Lord. He holds loosely to the confidence he has in his own future in 219 and 24 because he is hoping in the Lord to come to be with you, to be released. In 229, he urges the Philippians to lay down any resentment they have towards Epaphroditus for neglecting his mission to serve Paul and to instead welcome him in the Lord. They can be joyful amidst persecution in the Lord, in 3.1 and 4.4, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. And in verse 2 that we just read already, it says, Euodia and Syntyche are urged to give up their selfish disputes that threaten the health of the church and instead seek a unified mindset in the Lord. So over and over and over, he adds that little caveat, in the Lord. What does he mean by that? What does he mean? Why does he add that? Because you could just say rejoice in, in suffering. He could just say, I plan to come be with you. He could just say, hey, Euodia and Syntyche, get your crap together, get along, be unified. He, he could do that. Why does he add in the Lord? Well, that phrase, in the Lord, for Paul, indicates anything that it can only happen with God's direct assistance. It signifies things that are impossible for people to do on their own, since people are inherently self-absorbed and proud. And all of Philippians is about no longer being self-absorbed, no longer being proud, instead being selfless, sacrificial, and humble. So rejoice in chains? 
That's possible with Christ. Trust in God's will despite dire circumstances? That's possible with Christ. Show compassion and understanding for a hurting friend like Epaphroditus? It's possible with Christ. Persevering through intense persecution with joy and thanksgiving? That's possible with Christ. Putting aside power and pride in order to prioritize the gospel and see eye to eye with someone we disagree with? That's possible with Christ. In fact, I submit that's only possible with Christ. That's what, little, that, that's what this little phrase signifies. Something that can only happen when God's people crucify their corrupt, selfish, sinful ways and set their eyes on things above. In other words, a miracle. Because it is not in human nature to do these things. It's only when the Spirit's in us that we can begin to do them. It indicates something miraculous being done in our hearts. For the Philippians, whom Paul loves with every fiber of his being, they can only face the challenges they are facing if they do so in the Lord. They can only have that kind of strength, that kind of perseverance, if they do so in the Lord. If they trust him, if they seek his will, if they fully submit to the life and death of his son Jesus, if they do all these things in the Lord, they will be strong, they will stand firm. And the same is true for us. Whatever is tripping you up in your race, and we all have them, we all have things that we struggle with, that we suffer through, whether it's fear or doubt or insecurity, whether it's ignorance or comfort or pride, whether it's physical pain or spiritual pain or emotional pain or sexual pain, whether you are undergoing your suffering yourself or witnessing it in someone you love, which is sometimes worse, whether your pain is coming from other people to you or is coming from within you to yourself, whatever is threatening you these days, you can persevere because you know the one who empowers you. You are in him. And he is in you. That is how we stand firm when life is challenging and faith is threatened. We do so in the Lord. We trust, we seek, we submit, and we persevere. That's how we can stand firm. Whatever you are suffering, and we're all suffering something, whatever's trying to trip you up, and there's always temptations trying to trip us up, whatever your thing is, you can stand firm because he is in you and you are in him. We trust, we seek, we submit, and we persevere. But here's the thing. We don't need to trust and seek and submit and persevere on our own. The way we stand firm in the Lord is by standing together. That's the other word that Paul draws attention to us as he wraps up his letter. Unity. First, it was perseverance in the faith. Now it's unity in the faith, something he has urged on the Philippians repeatedly in the last three chapters. But here, he urges it by way of a corrective towards Euodia and Syntyche. As I mentioned earlier, such is the significance of Euodia and Syntyche's position of authority in the church that their disagreement is throwing off the balance of unity for the whole Philippian congregation. How Euodia and Syntyche go is how the whole Philippian church goes. Paul doesn't name their names to shame them, as with the communist hunts in the 40s and 50s. He names their names because they are prestigious servants of the gospel of Christ and fellow kingdom laborers with Paul. He names them because he holds them in such high regard. He's not throwing them under the bus. He's inviting them to get back into the driver's seat of the bus together and steer the whole crazy bus of faithful Philippian Jesus followers back on the proper course. He's not dismissing them. He's reinstating them. Even his means of rebuking them is done so in a unifying way. Notice how verse 2 somewhat awkwardly reads, 
I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He could have just said, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche. Why does he repeat that phrase? Well, he repeats the exact same plea, though he doesn't need to, in order to demonstrate he is not taking sides. He's giving them both the same command. Euodia, I am pleading with you, and Syntyche, I am pleading with you equally to give up your selfish and vain mindsets and take up a mindset of unity. Keep the bigger picture in mind. What he actually asks them to do, to agree with each other in the Lord, in the Greek, it's the exact same language as in chapter 2. So it says, be of the same mind in the Lord in chapter 4. That's what he's commanding Euodia and Syntyche do. Well, in chapter 2, he wrote, make my joy complete by being like-minded in 2 verse 2. And in 2 verse 5, he writes, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. If, if these leaders, Euodia and Syntyche, are to represent the gospel well in the cold, hostile Roman world around them, then they'll need to get on the same page. They will need to regain their shared priorities. They will need to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's that caveat again. They will need to be of the same mind in the Lord. And as you now know, that little phrase is a reminder that unity of this kind is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. To be of the same mindset. There's clearly some meaningful dispute between these two excellent women. It's not serious enough that Paul needs to crush them as he crushed the Corinthians. If you read Corinthians, it's like Paul's whipping them with a whip. They, they just, they're a bunch of ignorant miscreants. But he doesn't treat Philippian, or he doesn't treat Yodi and Syntyche the same way he treats the Corinthians. The issue isn't so bad that he needs to crush them, but it's serious enough that he wrote an entire letter about persevering in unity and then names them as the two parties who most need to heed this crucial lesson. He wrote every word of chapters 1 to 3 with all its focus on unity and like-mindedness, knowing he was addressing this issue with Yodi and Syntyche. Everything builds up to this, him saying, get it together. Great Christian leaders don't see what divides them. They see what unites them. They set aside differences of opinion on lesser issues. And, by the way, compared to unity, they are all lesser issues as far as I'm concerned. There is nothing, no pursuit more holy and sacred as we seek to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. There is no thing more worthy to pursue than unity. Without unity, we fall apart. We need unity. And so good leaders are able to set aside differences of opinion on lesser issues in order to stand in solidarity for the purpose of glorifying Jesus and making him known to a harsh and unbelieving world. We cannot make him known unless we have the same mindset. Now, don't get mistaken, and we talked about this several weeks ago, maybe even a few months ago, being of the same mindset, what are you laughing at? Being of the same mindset doesn't mean we agree on everything. It means we're willing to lay those disagreements aside to show compassion, forgiveness, and patience to those that we disagree with. It means that our, our minds are focused on the most important thing, and that is bringing glory to Jesus Christ. Being of the same mindset doesn't mean we think the same way. It doesn't mean we believe exactly the same things about everything. Being of the same mindset means we're focused on the same goal and we're doing it together. But we put all those other things aside if they start to hinder our unity. That's what being of the same mindset means. That's how we get our names written in the book of life. Not by arguing our way to superiority with each other. Not by besting each other in feats of spiritual strength like it's some kind of Olympic event. 
we get our names written in the book of life by working together to serve him and love our neighbors in unity. That's how we get our names written. Just like Clement and the others who aren't named here in verse 3. And Paul continues to demonstrate unity by calling on the community to support these excellent women as they persevere in their reconciliation. He calls upon a mysterious true companion, which is almost certainly Luke. He's Paul's most trusted companion. We know from Acts, excuse me, that Luke stayed in Philippi while Paul and Timothy moved on. So he's probably commending Luke to this task. But he calls upon this true companion, this loyal yoke fellow, to help their women in their quest for unity. Unity requires community. It's not something that just happens. It happens in community. We need each other. That doesn't mean we don't get on each other's nerves or that we conform to one single opinion on everything. That's ridiculous and impossible. It doesn't mean easy answers. It doesn't mean fake friendliness. That's, what, that's not what fellowship means, that we just smile at each other. But it does mean we honor each other, that we get our hands dirty in service together. It means we allow each other to make mistakes and grow in a non-linear fashion towards Jesus. I'm not becoming more Christ-like in the same way that any of you are becoming more Christ-like. And I'm going to have setbacks that waylay me on my way to Christ-likeness, just like you are. So we shouldn't expect other people to grow at the same rate and have the same maturity as us. I wouldn't want you to have the same maturity as me. God bless you that you are more mature than me. It's, we're not growing in the same way. So we need to be patient with one another. And patience only happens in the Lord. Patience with one another is a miracle. So it means we set aside foolish arguments and selfish desires in order to persevere towards our shared goal. And our shared goal is outing communists in Hollywood. Sorry, I mean living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Loving, just trying to bring it back to the intro. It means living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It means loving each other in the Lord. Oh, we'll name names all right. Not like the the communist hunts in the 50s, but we'll name names. Together, we'll be naming his name as the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that the name of Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the glory of God the Father. So we're going to name some names. Well, we're going to name one big name anyway. And if we persevere, then we will bow and confess his mighty name together in glory. So we might as well be unified in his name here on earth. We might as, we're going to be unified then. Everything else is going to melt away in his presence. All these petty arguments we have, all these ridiculous squabbles, all these selfish desires and vain conceits that trip us up, they're all going to melt away when we're in his presence. So we might as well start doing it now. Might as well be unified now. So if there is a Euodia in this church to your syndicate, if there is someone you are quarreling with, find a way to see the bigger picture together. I'm going to conclude with this. A house divided cannot stand, which means it cannot stand firm, in other words, persevere, and it cannot stand together, which means it can't be unified. In other words, no perseverance, no unity, if a house is divided. So once again, as Philippians begins to draw to a close, we can recommit to Christ by recommitting to one another as brothers and sisters, whose dad is a pretty awesome dad. That's how we, men and women alike, communists and capitalists alike, Euodias and Syntyches alike, get our names written in the book of life. 
through perseverance and unity. Let's pray. Father, on Father's Day, we honor you as the greatest of all fathers, and we know that we are your children. We know also that children fight with one another. So, Father, I pray that we, as your children, would put aside selfishness and vanity. We would put aside self-righteousness and judgment so that we can persevere together to make your name famous here in Clyde and beyond. I, I pray that you would give us perseverance, give us unity, so that we can do the task of, of furthering your gospel in your kingdom here on earth. Father, I pray that you would shape each one of us more and more into something that looks like you, and in doing so, we would be bonded together like a family more and more, that you would strengthen us together uh, through perseverance and unity. For your name's sake, your great and glorious name, the name above all names. So we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. We know that it is a miracle when these things happen. We know that, Holy Spirit, you are the catalyst of these good things. And so we ask in the Lord that you will give us perseverance and unity. We pray them in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Before we move any further, I should declare openly, I'm not a communist. Just just so you know. Now let's get back to our regular scheduled programming.